0: live. And, and Dee, Pastor D, Dee, as he's walked us through this series, in the last two weeks has covered two strong points. I mean, many different things have been brought up, but two strong points. And one of those is that we are to beware of the yeast. And we know how yeast functions. And the message to us in that is to beware of the smallest of compromises, beware of the smallest of attitudes, the positions that threaten to multiply quickly and soon take over. So to be alert, to examine ourselves, to pay attention. And then another strong message that has come through in this series so far is a message about the cross. That the cross is this symbol of tremendous power, but not exactly the power that it was originally intended for, not the power of the state to kill a capital punishment weapon, But Jesus' death and then resurrection shows us that power can take on a different form, that there really can be a reclamation through radical love, and that death is not the final answer, and that life comes through as God transforms and makes a way. Now, whether you've known it or not, the last couple weeks, you've been in a series on faith and politics. That might be a surprise to you. Maybe you picked up on that. And it's not been an overtly political series in the ways you might think. And that's very much on purpose. And we do not intend in a series on faith and politics to A, tell you exactly how you're supposed to interpret the political events of our day. That's not our goal. We don't want to be in the position of telling you who to vote for. That would be tremendously manipulative. That's not our role. And we're not even here to tell you what Christians believe politically because Christians, and we're going to get into this in a minute, believe a lot of different things politically and are very much Christian people. What we have aimed to do in this series is to give us all some handles on how we answer that great question throughout Mark. Well, how then do we live? And specifically, how do we live in our political sphere? And and you might be very aware that we live in a political sphere. It's hard not to after a week like we've had this week, right? It's been in our faces. And for some of us, this is something we eat and breathe. We love to think about politics and how it affects our lives. There might be a good handful of people in here who say, no, 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 not me, I am not political, it's not my interest, and that's okay. But I think something that's really important to consider is that whether we engage in politics readily and love it, we're not really sure how we feel about it or we'd like to keep a healthy distance from it, it does affect all of our lives. You woke up this morning and maybe had some milk or ate some eggs, right? Those are government-regulated food items. And you used some roads to get here, I, I imagine, unless you walked. You're lucky enough to live down the street. Um, you drove on some roads that are maintained by the government, right? You paid some taxes this week on some purchases. Sadly, saw it come out of your paycheck because that's part of the political sphere that we live in. You can't escape being political whether you're actively engaged in politics or not. We're political people. And, and so were the people of Mark's day. And so were the people that Jesus was living among. And so was Jesus. You, you, you can't help but be involved in the politics of your time. People in Mark's day were living and moving in a political framework and it dictated their lives, but they also dictated it. And it's exactly the same for us today. So last spring in the college group that I have a great privilege of leading in this room on Sunday nights, um, my college students were craving some help thinking about politics. It's kind of hard to maybe reach back and remember, but that would have been their first election for our college students, was this election. And what an interesting one to have been a part of, right? Um, so much discussion, it's such a heated election. And they were really, really desiring some engagement around that. And so, who better to bring in than Carl? <laughs> he asked for it. He actually said- I could said, give you a list. Actually, yeah. be Well, you did a great job. Um, in fact, Carl had asked me, hey, if there's ways I can help out with college group and I can talk about, um, the election, the politics, I'm I'm eager to have that discussion. We were eager to have that discussion. It was such a wonderful time. Um, he came for a couple weeks. Um, you study American studies. You almost studied theology, but look, here you are on the stage preaching today, Um, teaches literature next door at Point Loma, and we just had a wonderful time engaging with our college students. In fact, we were asked to co-lead a chapel breakout on the same theme, and so we want to replicate a bit of that discussion today and bring that here to our church family. So Carl, one of the main things that we talked a lot about, both preparing to teach college students while we were here with college students and at the university, one of the main things that we kept talking about is this great tension that all of us in the room live in, that we really have like a dual citizenship, right? We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we're clearly citizens of a nation, most likely this one. But perhaps you were born in another nation or you hold uh, two different national citizenships. And and that tension between being citizen of heaven, citizen of a nation um, is largely affected, right? You've helped me understand this, is largely affected by what I believe is the purpose of a nation. And maybe even more by what I believe, what we believe about how God interacts with a nation, what God's relationship is to a nation. And you've really helped me develop some thinking along these lines. So could you speak to that a bit?
1: Sure. If I could just take a moment of introduction too, because uh, this is a a humbling experience for me to stand before my own congregation and, and talk about these. And in part because as a college student, I was nurtured in this congregation, uh, and across the way started thinking about these ideas with my professors uh, as, as part of my undergraduate training, went on to do graduate work in American studies, and for the last 30 years, my professional life has been revolved around thinking about aspects of American culture, talking about aspects of American culture with students on a daily basis. And I've been trying to do this, as, an, since an undergraduate, been doing this self-consciously as a Christian. How should I be thinking about these things as a Christian? So uh, the book, there's a, a historian, helped me tremendously, a historian who is an expert in the 18th century, looking at the way English Christians and colonial Christians in around the time of the American Revolution thought about uh, God's work in history and God's work with nations. In his study, he found three fundamental basic categories, and, and it's been compelling for me because I, I still hear these categories articulated a- around me. The first is is a position that says that while in the Old Testament, in the biblical era, God raised up uh, people groups, God raised up nations to do his will, that since the... Um, the, the death and resurrection of Christ, and since the founding of the Christian church, God no longer raises up nations, no longer raises up people groups, but judges people individually and raises up the church. That would be one position that people, that people take. The second position is that, no, no, just as it was in the biblical times, God can raise up nations now that he continues to judge people individually on their discipleship to Jesus and works through the church, but God can also at times raise up a nation to do his bidding, to do his will, and can also judge a nation, therefore, for being unfaithful, for being um, um, destructive to human flourishing in some way. A third position, says that not only does God raise up nations, but if we are taught to read the Bible well and we can unlock the key, there's a way of reading scripture that will tell us exactly how God has worked with nations in the past and might anticipate how God is going to work with nations in the future. That third position has, has given rise over the last, goodness, 150 years to a pretty consistent tradition in American culture of prophecy belief, and prophecy conferences, books written by people who who believe that they have the key to unlock future events and know what nations God will raise up at any given moment. Thinking about the fact that Christians hold those three positions helps me understand not their politics, but how how much weight they put on politics. Because if you're if you're in that middle group, Christians in that middle group who believe that God still raises up nations, it, it will not determine their political beliefs, but it may con- greatly contribute to the intensity with which they engage politically. So I've certainly known uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. oh, I, let me say one other thing. In, in an American context, this is often called, people in that second group are often, um, associated with an idea called American exceptionalism. You may have heard this. It's something that one time only scholars talked about, but it's in the popular discourse of our world very much these days. A belief that, that America is in a special, in a particular relationship with God that to help God accomplish God's goals in history. People in that second group then, I've, I've certainly encountered brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that, let's say, God is going to judge America because abortion is legal, or God is going to judge America because uh, same-sex marriage is legal. I've also known people who have said that God is going to judge America because of our high rates of incarceration, especially of men of color, or that God is going to judge America because, unlike many other industrialized nations, we still practice capital punishment or that God is going to judge America because we do not welcome the immigrant, the stranger at our gates, regardless of their documentation. So you can see then that that people across the board can be in that second category. It can lead them to very different political commitments. What they have in common is an intensity about their politics. That if we get politics wrong, we risk the judgment of God coming down on us, not individually, only, but as a nation. And that can lead to a very different level of political engagement than the people who believe in that first category that God no longer deals with nations in this way. That helps me because a lot of times I think, I see my brothers and sisters in Christ talking across one another without recognizing that they have fundamental theological differences that inform the way they think about politics and the role of the nation. And the role of God's work in history.
0: That's really, really helpful because if if I'm engaging with somebody who thinks that God has sort of left the world to figure out, for us to figure it out and await for heaven when everything is made right, but I'm engaging with somebody who deeply believes that God cares about my activity and my activity as part of the US, uh, we're having different, we're almost having a different conversation then, right? So that helps us take a few steps back to even determine what is our. Kind of philosophical position about God and a nation before we maybe dive in on abortion or capital punishment or these issues. Um, Often, I think when we consider our engagement in politics or civic life, our go-to is voting. Right? It's just it's it's sort of what's you hear. We're hearing a lot about that this week. An emphasis on registering to vote, and it's certainly important. But as our friend Lindsay Lupo (laughs) shared in chapel, it's almost illogical to think it does much because there's a lot of votes out there, and we're just one, right? It's still important. But there are so many other ways to also be engaged. And so, Carl, I'd love for you to help us think through what does Scripture have to say to us about what engagement looks like with the world, Um, maybe even specifically locally, like in our city. What, What does Scripture have to say about engagement with the
1: world? Well, and again, I have a tendency to go big picture on things. Yeah, it's but, helpful. It's uh, helpful. The, um, what's been helpful to me over the last decade or so is to truly consider that um, for the Christian, the best is yet to be. Uh, wherever, whatever we think about our society now, I think we can agree that, that we are not living in the kingdom of heaven. We are not living in the kingdom of Christ now. But that is coming to us. It is out there. And so that's what I think that that has helped me to think about the metaphor of living as an exile. Not living as as an exile from a world that used to be here, but's now gone. But living in an exile in a paradoxical kind of way, living in an exile from a world that is not yet here. I await the kingdom of heaven. I await the kingdom of Christ. And I live here knowing that this is not my final home. This does not let us off the hook in terms of engagement. This is not the position that would say, therefore, I'm not going to be involved in my world at all. If I go to the the metaphor of exile and I think about the children of Israel living in exile in Babylon, it really helps me. And Jeremiah wrote a letter to those folks. And what he told them was, settle in, marry, have children, treat this as your home, but remember that it's not your final home. But he also tells them to work for the shalom of their society, which is a word, I guess, that is terrifically difficult to translate. <laughs> it gets, at least looking at the different, different uh, translations that I've encountered, it's translated differently, um, from welfare to well-being to all kinds of different pieces of your the, the, work for the reign of God in your in your place of exile. Because in, in the shalom of your society, you will find your shalom. That then leads me to sense that, okay, so, so acknowledging that I'm an exile doesn't mean I don't get engaged. It means I get engaged in a particular way, knowing that I'm working for proximate goods. I'm working towards trying to build a, a more Christ-like society, even while I recognize that it, this is not my home and I will not be fully successful and that this is the work of God in Christ to bring this kingdom to be not my work um, in, this, in my place of exile. But to remember that I'm in an exile and not treat this as my final home.
0: So it's, it's like when you hear in scripture about co, kind of co-laboring, like co-working with Christ. That, that imagery kind of comes to me as you're talking. That it is God's work to be done and we get this tremendous privilege somehow of being agents of being used by God right and that that could look so many different ways as in terms of our civic engagement
1: well and especially in a society that is um, some people call post-christian some people call diverse whatever it is where we are engaging oftentimes with people who do not share our fundamental theological positions. how do we work with folks in that way when we differ so much on some fundamental areas and I think this gives us a sense of saying, okay, I, I can work for approximate good. Yeah. I can work for, to, th- to make things a bit better, yeah. even while I acknowledge that they don't share my fundamental theological position. They may not have the same final goals as I have, yeah. but we can be, at, at least at this moment, strange bedfellows, <laughs> stra- very strange bedfellows at times, yeah. but we can work in conjunction with others, even while acknowledging they do not share our fundamental theological commitments.
0: That's really good. And that that sort of leads to the next thing I want to ask you about. It's a biggie, and I hope you solve it for all of us right here, okay? No pressure. So I would love, Carl, for you to tell us how. Talk to us a bit about some of your ideas about how do we engage in dialogue, in civil discourse, particularly around areas of disagreement, without needing... um, without needing certain outcomes for that conversation to be okay, without trying to manage how the other person thinks. Um, I would even say, uh, just to really put it in brass tacks, like without wanting to win. I think that in such a politicized environment that we're in, we get to such polls and then convincing the other person to come to our side or winning becomes our aim. So how, how to do that? Why to do that? Why even engage that? Yeah, I. <laughs> you got that? Yeah, no problem.
1: Okay, great. We're out of time, aren't we? Are we <laughs> <out of> time? <laughs> nope, we're not. I'm I the usually, time timekeeper, uh, not you. That's where I usually <laughs> count on the bell ringing at the end of class for this kind of thing. Um, I it breaks. What breaks my heart is when I see brothers and sisters in Christ willing to break fellowship with one another over a political commitment, uh, who who are unwilling to acknowledge. That Christians, not only in the United States but around the world, disagree profoundly about political matters. If so, for me, the first step is to not question someone's commitment to Christ, someone's confession, someone's discipleship because they disagree with me. Uh, I just I maybe this comes from being oftentimes holding a minority opinion about in whatever group I'm in. It's like I don't want them to judge my faith based on what they think I think about some political issue. And so I, I need to extend that grace to others and, and not be willing to say, be willing to say this is not a salvation issue. This is not an issue uh, upon which um, your, your salvation rests. This is something we need to talk about. And we need to try to understand why we've come to different positions here and not assume that everyone agrees with one another, but also to extend grace in a Christian context to extend grace that would say, this is not a matter of salvation. I am not going to question your, the, the quality of your faith, the quality of your confession, the quality of your discipleship, based on whether or not we agree on this political issue. When we move then into try to, trying to have conversations with non-Christians, this becomes, I think, even more complex because oftentimes we're told as Christians that we cannot bring our most fundamental commitments into the public into the public arena, that these are private beliefs that that may f- factor into our own devotional life, but this should have no con- they have no place in the in the broader public context, the proper broader public discourse. And I have to reject that too, and say to, to my to my um, non-Christian fellow citizens. You bring your fundamental commitments to this conversation. You bring what you understand to be the nature of reality to this conversation. If I cannot bring, not my private beliefs, but what I profoundly believe about the nature of reality to this conversation, then I'm going to be shut out and you're, you're not going to even allow me to speak. And so I have to insist, I have to be able to insist in the larger context that these commitments do flow from my fundamental understanding of the nature of reality uh, and that is that god in christ has redeemed the, the world and is working to reconcile all of life back to god
0: that's really really helpful um, could you talk a bit about the posture that we can take as people who engage in these conversations like? Um, I think it is, it's so easy to get hooked in, especially if we're passionate about a subject. So what are some tips, like some keys for us to staying, um, to receiving well from other people?
1: Yeah, um, wow, I, I, I guess just humility. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, I've, I've been trying to study this material. I've been di- engaged in a daily conversation about this material for, for decades and still feel like I have so much to learn from my fellow citizens and from my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to really attend to and listen to their position and try to understand how they could uh, come to ideas, especially if those ideas are or those commitments are very, very different than my own. Uh, so try to approach that with humility, to me is about the only thing I could suggest.
0: Well, it's, it's the way you live your life. It's an, you, you give an incredible model of how to do that. I've seen you do that time and time again. Um, it is almost, I will almost let you out with the bell, but any last thoughts before we do? So anything that you want to share that we didn't get to cover this morning?
1: I don't think so. I think Okay, that's,
0: yeah. well, can you thank Carl with me? Thank you so much. So I'm going to invite Pastor D to come up and he's going to take us back to that passage in Mark 9 and help us take the thoughts that have been shared this morning and apply those to the scripture today.
2: Thank you, Melissa. Thank you, Carl. Um, What a great bridge. You might ask yourself, what in the world does this have to do with Mark chapter 9? And I want to tell you, it has everything to do with Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, we have five major sections. Four I just want to mention right now. There is the transfiguration story. There is the healing of the boy who is both deaf and mute. There is a discussion about who is the greatest and a competition about others who are performing miraculous healings. There's a fifth section that has to do with children. I'm going to push that into next week. But those four sections tie so beautifully into what you just heard. I would like to start small and then come out in the ten minutes that we have together right now. And the focus, I want to be on the healing of the boy who is deaf, and mute. There are some who would suggest that Mark does a wonderful thing in this story by including pieces that seem to connect all of the previous healings into this one. It's not to say that this is somehow made up by Mark, but the way in which Mark presents it brings together the previous nine healings in the gospel of Mark, almost as if to say this is... This is huge. Pay attention. I, I, and I, I'm not sure if there's a perfect fit for all of those, but the assertion is that in chapter 1, the healing of the person with the evil spirit in this particular story, this boy has an evil spirit. Also in chapter 1 is the healing of the leper. And in that particular setting, there is a way by which Jesus is described as having deep compassion. And in this story, the compassion of Jesus and the word used for compassion is similar to that story. We have in chapter 2, the healing of the paralytic who's dropped through the roof. And the similarity between the two stories is the large crowd, including the teachers or scribes. And those things are similar in both stories. It's followed in chapter 3 by the healing of the person with the withered hand. And in this story, Jesus takes the boy by the hand. Um, We have the story in chapter 5 of the the demoniac in the area of the Gerasenes. And that particular story tells about how this spirit um, did some real damage to the victim of this spirit, and in this case, the same way as with this little boy who, when he seizes, he's sometimes thrown into the fire or into the water. There is the story also in chapter 5 of the ruler's daughter who was brought back from life, and in this story, we hear of the boy who appears dead after the evil spirit leaves him, and it's as if Jesus brings him back to life. There is the story also in chapter 5 of the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. And what's powerful about that story is her faith. And here the entire discussion is centered around faith, the belief and unbelief. We also have the story in chapter 7 of the um, Syrophoenician woman who comes on behalf of her daughter and the marvelous story that we talked about in here several weeks ago, the way in which she wins the argument. But that's a mother and a daughter. And here we have a father and a son, similar at least in some ways. And then finally, we also have in chapter seven, the healing of a person who is both deaf and mute. And once again, in chapter nine, the healing of someone who is both deaf and mute. I don't know if that's all coincidence, I'm not sure. But it does at least identify for us that this is a really important healing, an important story for us to pay attention to. So, what is it that we're supposed to see in this? Well, one of Mark's techniques that he uses over and you know, over again is that sometimes he frames certain stories with a beginning and end. And. It, It marks for us that we need to pay attention to the frame around this. And the frame around this healing story is about the disciples. Jesus comes off of the Mount of Transfiguration and he sees a crowd that's engaged in a pretty heated dialogue with the disciples, and the disciples have not been able to cast out this evil spirit. They were given power earlier in this storyline where they were sent out to the various towns, Jesus sent them out, and they were given this power. This power doesn't seem to be working here. This ability to access the Spirit of God, to get rid of this evil spirit, and the disciples are in the midst of this debate and this discussion. It also concludes with an engagement with the disciples where Jesus attempts to teach them things that they don't seem to be getting it makes us consider that maybe the point of this story is about the disciples, not as much about the healing. When the healing takes place, we don't have some of the things that we see take place in other healings where the crowd is amazed and, and they, they want to exalt Jesus and all kinds of things happened at the conclusion of some of the previous stories. But in this one, the person's healed And then we move into this discussion with the disciples. Well, What is it about the disciples that we ought to learn? Well, my hope is we might acknowledge that we are among the readers of this. And this story is not about just the disciples. It's about all of us who want to follow Christ. And into this place, this discussion of disciples we might pick up that it is framed by the failure of the disciples to get it. Before the miracle, we have the story of Peter who rebukes Jesus for the notion of being a suffering servant Messiah. Peter apparently isn't getting it and is rebuked by Jesus we have the transfiguration story where peter says why don't we build you know a, a tent like like we might do during one of the feasts that acknowledges this great event and we'll build one for elijah for moses and for you jesus and peter is rebuked basically no peter you're not getting it it's not about exaltation of a new king and new kingdom, your notion of what the Messiah is going to do at this moment. It's also not about all kind of loud and honor to the preeminence of the key figures in our history, and, and you as well, Jesus. It's not about that either. Post this story, we have two stories of the disciples' failure again. We have an argument among the disciples as to who's the greatest. Talk about missing the point. Who's going to be the most exalted in this new kingdom? Who's going to win? Who's going to get the most power? Who's going to get the best title? Who's going to get the best spot? And that's followed by John who brings to Jesus' attention that there is someone else who's doing healing. Lord, should we rebuke them? Tell them to stop doing the good stuff they're doing because we're the ones who are supposed to be doing all the cool stuff. And John, the beloved, is rebuked. This story is framed by the disciples not understanding The point of this is that the deaf and mute boy is a pretty powerful description of the disciples. And if they are improving in the journey, the father is a pretty good description of the disciples. Disciples who have within them something that is keeping them blind, something that's making them incapable of receiving what it is that Jesus is trying to proclaim. Something inside of them that is a defense, a barrier, a little bit of yeast that has gotten in and worked through them in such a way that they have these blockages, unable to see the conflict, the issues that Jesus is trying to proclaim. They have bought into a system That ranks people. They have bought into a system that has a hierarchy of power. They have bought into a system that vies for the top spot in whatever sphere you have to be above so that you're not beneath, in charge so that you're not serving, winning so that you're not losing. Part of the circle of those who have, so you're not part of the ones who have not. And Jesus' call is to live very differently in the midst of the culture in which they find themselves. It's fascinating when the disciples say, Why couldn't we do this? The storyline through Mark's many chapters here that we have have talked about how power to do good is hampered by a lack of faith or belief in what it means to do good. Even Jesus, in his hometown, could do very little because of their lack of belief, their lack of faith. And they ask why they couldn't, and Jesus says, this only comes about through prayer. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that the disciples are called to prayer. And it's interesting to me that it is not a call to lift up all of your petitions, and that's an appropriate thing to do. It's not a call to go through the list of those who are hurt and to pray for those others who need healing. The disciples have specifically asked, how come we could not do this? And Jesus says, this comes through prayer. It seems to me that Jesus is asking the disciples into deep, profound reflection on the things within that keep us from truly hearing Jesus' call. Prayer that calls us to wrestle with our own prejudice, our own biases, our own sense of segregation of the other from me, our own misunderstanding of power. A call to prayer the challenges the disciples in their exercise of faith. This longing from the Father it says, oh, everything in me, I want to believe. But there's so much in me that's unbelief. So much that I don't even know or understand. Oh God, will your spirit examine me? Transform me from the Inside out. This message of Jesus is profound in how we engage in our culture. Jesus says, step away from your self-centeredness. Your selfish behavior that calls yourself into the argument of who's going to be the greatest. Of who it is that gets to do the good. Of who gets the nameplate. Take up the cross. Acknowledge that you might be crucified for taking this posture. If you actually begin to believe that the way in which you engage may be more important than the outcome of the engagement, you may very well be crucified for that posture. If you decide that winning is not everything, That winning is in the hands of our Creator. Salvation is accomplished by our Messiah. Our calling is to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, step away from the selfish endeavor of engagement. Recognize that how we engage may lead to crucifixion. And follow me in service. And trust that that is the revolution that might begin to change our neighborhood, our city, our country, our world. It begins by a confession, oh God, I'm trying to believe, to understand what you've called me to do. Help me in my unbelief. Help me to step away from my incessant desire to win. Help me to step into a place where my engagement is an engagement of love and compassion. And I'm willing to step into that place knowing that many will not understand that posture but to do so because you've called me to follow your footsteps in serving one another. Jeremiah's petition to the people, settle in. Seek the best for the place where you are living, but recognize that you are an alien in the land in which you dwell. And my spirit will be with you my promises true. The power I offer you is the power of the resurrection. And that's all the power you need. I'm going to invite